0: Hey, it doesn't count as one long episode if you break it into two. It's kind of like drinking a Long Island iced tea. You can say that it's just one drink, even though it has five shots in it. You can tell people, "Hey, hey I've only had one drink. I only had one drink, officer. It was a Long Island iced tea. It's only one drink, even though it has five shots." Uh, so that's kind of what these episodes are. They're they're like Long Island iced teas. Of uh, podcast episodes. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, what's on my mind is it's funny how more political commentary, which nobody gets enough of, nobody has enough political commentary in their life. Nobody gets enough of it. Seems true, though. It seems though, even though it's everywhere, even though we are oversaturated in political commentary, it seems like people can't get enough. And I'm not the first one. It seems like everybody, but I know it's not everybody. It seems like many people at the very least are aware of the ways in which modern liberalism and conservatism are almost cross-dressing in some ways, where modern liberalism has this very strict definition of what reality is and what the components of reality are. And if you don't agree with that, or even if you it's not even as simple as just, you know, it's not just if you oppose it or dismiss it. But if you just simply haven't bought in yet, you are their enemy, until you change your tune to exactly what they want you to say. And I know people who would consider themselves liberals who would say that's not true. But I, I do feel that there is enough of a trend. And I don't think that I mean, it's difficult for me to not see at this point, and I try to be very objective when I talk about these things. But I, I think that modern liberalism, which once prided itself on the imagination and a certain limitlessness, now has a very tight hold on its definitions of reality, the components of reality. Um, and uh, whereas modern conservatism has taken on this sort of pseudo liberal air where it's like, look, like, uh, we're very we're into live and let live and do whatever you want. You know, which conservative is conservativism has always pushed on a governmental level, they've always at least claimed to push this idea of small government, less regulation. But now they're doing that socially, whereas when I was growing up conservativism, when the fundamentalist right was running the show. And they really are on the margins now. I know they're of course waiting to gain power again, but they really are on the margins. And, uh, but they, they were very much into the, they were the ones who were saying, like, this is reality. This is reality, and if you don't agree, you go into hell. and before you go to hell, we're going to make your life hell." That was sort of the approach of conservatism when I was growing up, or at least how I perceived it. You know, I might have had a distorted view of it. I'll never claim to see these things exactly as everyone else sees them or let alone describe the whole of them. But now you see, you know, at least the public platform of conservatism, conservatism it's very difficult to say, uh, taking this sort of liberal approach where it's like, look, we, we're the ones who love the gay people. We're the ones who love the gay people, don't you see? Whereas previously they were the ones who were like, hey, let's not let these people get married. Whereas now it's sort of like, gay marriage, whatever, whatever. Um, So in many ways, these allegedly opposing viewpoints are sort of cross-dressing in a strange way. It's like they chose the wrong articles of clothing, though. It's like it's like liberals decided to cross-dress as conservatives and vice versa, but they didn't choose the best clothing available to do so with. <laughs> and as these two belief systems have kind of come head-to-head, they've come closer together, and you would think that they would have met. You'd think that they would have met in some sort of central space, not necessarily in the form of you know, some compromise or mo- or common moderate viewpoint, but you would think they both would have just entered the same space and been like, "Oh, oh, you're here," and they, you think they would have come up against each other and at least uh, acknowledged each other and been like, "Oh, oh, you're you're uh, you're stealing my underwear. I was stealing your underwear." You'd think that that's what they would have done, but they actually completely passed one another. It's like two ships passing in the night. They completely missed each other. And this is almost how I feel about modern conservatives and liberals. It's almost like they arranged to have a blind date at the same bar, and both of them showed up, but they ended up sitting on opposite ends of the room, and they're both texting their friends saying, she didn't show. She didn't show up. Meanwhile, she's over there texting her friends saying, he flaked. He flaked. He's not here. What an ass, you know, it's, they're sitting, they're both sitting there texting their friends about each other, saying the other person didn't show up. Meanwhile, they're both there. And everybody watching the movie, and it is a movie, is sitting there saying, she's right there. She's right there. You know, that we're both sitting, you know, all of us in the audience are sitting there screaming at the screen, saying, you know, you guys both, you're wearing each other's clothing, And you're in the same bar, but you're sitting on opposite ends of the room, texting your friends about how the other person didn't show, and how it's all their fault, your night's ruined. Meanwhile, everybody else is like, you're playing the same game. You're part of the same deal. You're almost the same thing. And you're, you know, wearing garments that belong to the other person. That's how I see it. That's how I feel about it. Um, And uh, it, just, it, it just makes our world even more strange, you know, and of course these beliefs change, you know, I'm not going to sit there and be like, you've changed about liberals or conservatives, because everything changes. I mean, people always talk about Republicans and Democrats sort of switching roles in some ways. Um, but, uh, you know, these things do change, and they do react, and they're very temporary. And we have a tendency to think they are fixed. It's just one of the many things we think are fixed. Our world, even though it, we know that it's in this constant state of change, it's so great that political parties just stay the exact same forever. It's like, of course, those are the first to change. Those are the the most uh, bendable of of all toys, you know. The most bendable of all toys, because the reality is too. If if politics were toys. They would be those bendy figures. They wouldn't be action figures. They would be those bendy figures that you used to be able to get for cheap at the hardware store. You know how hardware stores would have a toy aisle? It was always strange. It's like for kids who got dragged to the hardware store with their parents. It's like, here's a bendable uh, Bugs Bunny. That's kind of how I feel about politics, though. I would never consider them action figures. The embodiment of politics. (laughs) Politics. The embodiment of politics uh, is not a cool superhero action figure or a G.I. Joe. They're very much these bendable figures that don't even stand up. Because those bendable figures, yeah, you can bend the arm backwards. You can bend them in directions that no living creature could bend. But they can't stand up on their own. Uh, But uh, that's how I feel about it. And it's funny, too, because when I look at it and it's like these two... Entities are part of the same game. They are the same thing in many ways, especially when you notice that they begin to cross-dress. And they would never admit it. They would never admit they are cross-dressing. But you wonder what else is going on under the surface. You know, I can't claim this as an original thought, but I saw somebody say that they thought many liberals, many leftists were going to vote for Donald Trump's feld in this election Because what would they do without him? And while that, you know, is probably an extreme example, because there probably are people who would vote for him because they see that as a greater opportunity for revolution. They think that that will keep the fire hot behind what's going on right now. There are people who probably take that rationale. But I believe there are people who, on the surface, would claim to be voting Democrat or at the very least, not voting for Donald Trump's fell. They're probably very vocal, but secretly might vote for him. And there are, of course, people who will do that because secretly they do support him and just don't want their friends and family to excommunicate them. But there are other people, I believe, who subconsciously they don't want the guy to disappear because he gives their life meaning. They revolve around him. They're, these are the people whose brains reset in 2016 and they can't remember everything else leading up to 2016 and their entire world for the last four years I mean, I saw somebody say online somebody that I personally know say that Him getting sick was the first time they've been happy in three years Like like they used the date that he the day before the election The previous election they said this is the first time I felt happy in three years. Yeah, it's a, it's a joke They're making a joke But there's some truth to that. And it's just strange that people's brains were given a hard reset the second this guy got elected, and they don't remember their memory of everything before 2016 is almost like your memory of your own infancy, where you might have a memory, you might remember something like you might have some vague memory of your mom placing you in your crib or some song that your parents would play for you, or something or another, or some TV show. But it's all very hazy and dreamlike, and that because you know that's that's what infancy is like. You know, you really you don't really know what's a memory, and you also have so many people telling you what life was like when you were a baby. Oh, I remember you used to do this when you were a baby, and so that's been planted in your head. So you don't really know. How many memories of your first two years on this earth Or even your own Or something that somebody told you That has entered your brain So you kind of remember what somebody told you About your childhood And then that's mixed with some sort of Ethereal Half a memory here or there You know, you just don't really know But I feel like that's the world people are operating in When they think about pre-2016 It's become this sort of ethereal Just wispy smoke With a few faces here or there, a few vague faces and words. And uh, everything else is just the last three or four years. And that's strange. But it wouldn't surprise me if some of those people actually want another four years of Donald Trump's felt, because what would they do without him? He gives their life so much meaning. They revolve around him. They actually revolve around him He is a planet And they are are one of his many, many moons So many moons So why would they want him to go away? What would they do with themselves? What sort of existential crisis would they go through? And maybe deep down, subconsciously, they know that They know that if this guy is not around to hate They don't know what their own meaning is They don't know what they stand for And yeah, this is all hypothetical and sort of fun to think about. But I like to imagine that person exists. If people can believe in the Big Bang Theory, if people can believe in... If people think people are confident they know how our universe was created and there's people who will tell you, well, there's actually an infinite number of ourselves in different universes doing the same and different things, you know, because everything is possible. But if you tell them... Did you know that there's probably liberals out there who are voting for Donald Trump because he gives their life meaning like, no, they're not, you know, someone, someone who's very open minded about the infinite possibilities of our universe would probably just shut you down right away for suggesting that but it wouldn't surprise me if there are people like that. But yeah, it really does feel like people on a blind date. Wearing each other's clothing on opposite ends of the room Texting their friends about what an asshole the other person is This girl was such an asshole She stood me up She stood me up um, Meanwhile you are the girl who stood you up That's what they don't realize It's all actually the same person in that bar It's just one person who It's like Fight Club But instead of uh, you know, imagining some very cool guy some cool revolutionary guy. It turns out it's just you, but you were pretending to be someone cross-dressing as you, and you arranged a date with them. And then when you went there and you were the only person there, you thought you were stood up. Turns out that's what it is. It's all just one person doing it all. But yeah, you know, it, it is It is just funny how it all plays out. And it, as an when you're outside of it, you can see it that much more vividly. And not that I'm better or worse or anything else, but I do feel that if you take a step back, take a step back, climb a rung up the ladder and look down, you see these things for what they are. And, uh, had something else I was going to talk about. What was it? What was it? Um, Well, you know, I I think we need to get more into describing things as they are. Because that's an issue. That's why people are unable to see the cross dressing. That's why people are unable to see that they are in the same room as somebody else. And they're actually on a blind date, but they just haven't acknowledged each other. You know, the reason why that's so difficult is because people are looking for the wrong thing. Let's go back to the idea. We're going to take a step back. These this person on the blind date, they actually are two people again, it's not just one person having some sort of, uh, you know, multiple personality episode. It's actually two people. But the reason why it's so hard to acknowledge each other is they didn't listen to a description, they were looking for the wrong thing. And I think that's the issue with modern politics, too, is things aren't described, they are given a brand name. And you know, speaking of epiphanies earlier, a huge epiphany for me was years ago, you know, I, my friend Nick, you know, he's a writer, he likes to write. Um, he's devoted a lot of his creative energy to just writing, you know, different different forms of creative writing. And when I used to drink, I used to sometimes drink and I would write very short, short stories. You've heard of short stories? Well, this is a short, short story. But I would write these very short, short stories either based on events from our childhood because we grew up together or, or inspired somehow by our childhood or just different adventures we've been on, even as adults. But this, this one in particular, I remember, was drawing from our, some sort of childhood memory. And I, I sent him this one. And in it, I described... I didn't describe. I referred to a video game. I said, the boys are playing uh, this video game. I named the video game. And I remember he wrote me back. And, you know, granted, this was just for his eyes only. It wasn't something that I intended to share with the world. Uh, But it was for his eyes only. But he gave me this excellent feedback about the video game. And he said, next time, instead of referring to the name of the video game, describe it. Don't say, oh, they were playing Goldeneye. They were playing James Bond, Brand Goldeneye. You know, he said, Don't don't say Goldeneye, describe what's going on in the game, or just describe the game itself. And that was excellent advice for life in general. Describe the game. First of all, it's more interesting. As a reader, if you're reading a story, you know, if you say, Oh, the boys were playing Goldeneye, someone will go, Oh, I remember Goldeneye. Oh, I know what that is. But if you describe the game, even if somebody guesses correctly what game you're referring to, it captures their imagination a little more. Because one thing I like about fiction is when it describes something that is very close to something that you know in reality, but it's just different enough to remove you a little bit. And so that's sort of what happens when you describe something is you're no longer seeing it vividly under the brand name, under the category or label that you otherwise would, you're now visualizing something familiar, but slightly different. And, you know, even though he was giving me this advice as a writer, it's it's it really fits in perfectly with one of this show's mantras, which is don't explain, describe. That's what the scientific process is. The scientific process should never explain to you what is happening. A description should be more than enough. A description is the scientific process. Science is describing reality in the terms best available to it. And it's true for creativity as well, where creativity should describe rather than explain. And I mean, I think that's one of the the pitfalls of creativity when it does veer into explanation And it's one of the reasons why I don't like political music. It's one of the reasons I don't like political punk rock or even other music that tries to give you an explicit political message. I often find that it kind of becomes this explanation for how you should think or what you should do. Whereas there are many artists that might have an underlying message. But if it's in the form of a description, it does something different, it causes you to do some of the work yourself. And that's a much deeper interaction. You know, it's your interaction, interaction, you're interacting with something, your interaction itself becomes creative, I guess would be the way to think of it. And you might come up with a new idea yourself through that. Like, imagine listening to punk music that has an overtly political message. You think about all the punk from the 80s that was anti-Reagan. And what is that? What are you going to do with that? Like, you might take influence from the music, but it's like, how is that going to inspire you? What are you going to build with that? Oh, okay. I'll make a I'll make a record about Ronald Reagan's. I'm going to make my own anti-Ronald Reagan's record, except it's going to be about uh, George W. Bush. Or it's going to be about Donald Trump's felt, but it's not, it's not creative, you know, it's like, oh, you know, I'm going to do what they did, but I'm going to make it current by talking about Donald Trump's felt, you know, that's the most you can do with that. Whereas somebody who takes a more creative approach, who takes a more descriptive approach might actually give you a little more to work with. Not that, not that everything you like has to be something that you then use or that causes you to become inspired or creative, but I do think there's something to be said for that. I do think there's something to be said for giving people something that they can personally build on. And it does come to me through description because what Nick was talking about when he said, instead of referring to the name of the video game, describe the video game because that forces you the writer to you're no longer taking a shortcut. And you're no longer playing on this phony nostalgia where it's like, yeah, if you're reading this, and you're my age, I bet you remember playing Goldeneye with your friends. Instead, it would be like a man, a, a short man in a suit with a bowler hat is going around with a gun. And there are four panels on the screen and somebody else has a rocket launcher, you know, whatever. Uh. It does a little more something, even if you know exactly what they're talking about. And, you know, it's funny where that idea comes from, because it's something I harp on time and time again, describe rather than explain. And it's true for virtually any situation. And what originally planted that idea in my head of all things, it was the group, the Sun City Girls, sort of an experimental I don't. I don't know how to describe the Sun City Girls, and I wouldn't call myself a huge fan. My friend Miles introduced me to them probably 16 years ago now, and particularly the album Dante's Disneyland Inferno. Um, sort of goofy, but also there's something very heavy about their material. But there's a song on that album, and it says uh, s- something like "Don't." Uh, I have to think of it here. I don't believe in explanations, explanations only come from liars, a description will do. And that hit me, a ton of bricks, a ton of brick, cartoon bricks, except they didn't fall in my body, they somehow pierced my brain, they somehow didn't do any physical damage to me, that ton of bricks didn't do any physical damage to me, they somehow just slipped right through my flesh and hit me right in the brain. Because that blew my mind. It was an epiphanous moment. We're listening to that record, where Yeah, I don't believe in explanations. Explanations only come from liars, a description will do. And then sure enough, many years later, when I got into Alan Watts, Alan Watts says the exact same thing. And it wouldn't surprise me if the Sun City girls were Alan Watts fans. I'd actually be surprised if they weren't. At the very least, I'm sure they were aware. And not that Sun City Girls or Alan Watts or anybody owns that idea, because I think that's something that even if somebody doesn't pit the idea of an explanation against a description, like even if you don't see that in terms of explanation versus description, I believe a lot of people can come to a similar conclusion. Where a description is inherently more objective An explanation is trying to tell you how something works Or or why something is There is a why and a how But in particular a why behind an explanation Whereas a description is simply telling you what something is doing In the most minimal possible terms Because you don't have to color a description and it's funny because it's, it's one of those sort of, uh, I don't know, you, you think of artist descriptions when somebody does an exhibition or if they have a website, there's often an artist description. And I never know what they're talking about. I'm an artist. I never know what these artists are talking about. They'll make some sort of statement about what their work represents. And this isn't me being some pseudo blue-collar, I don't know what these artists are saying. I I don't even know what these artists are saying. It's like it's like a pink dot on a white canvas, and he says it it represents uh, motherhood, uh, you know, or something like that. You know, I'm not even being that guy about this. I'm saying as a, a extremely pretentious, over analytical artist, I have no idea what these people are talking about when I see their artist descriptions, and I don't think that they are descriptions. I think they're artist explanations and they're forced explanations. But anyway. (laughs) <laughs> anyway just something that I always feel like I try not to have animosity about it but I see these artist descriptions and I'm like that's an explanation and it doesn't make any sense even then because they're al- I think that's a the thing there always is something forced about an explanation and the Sun City girls saying an explanation you know comes from liars I think there is something just dishonest about an explanation Or even if you believe in the explanation you're giving, a description is all you need. Because a description can also serve as a guideline. It can allow you to see something in terms that you previously didn't understand or see something in a way that you didn't see it. But when you read a description, you know that there is something truthful about it because you yourself can observe it. And you may have even observed it before, but you simply didn't hear it described in those terms. But when you see that description, you now know that, hey, you know, that that's a certain way of looking at that thing. And to go back to the political thing, that's an issue with modern politics, where very rarely do people describe their political opponent. They try to explain, first of all, their own platform. All it is is explanation. And it's also, and they're trying to explain what their opponent is up to as well. Meanwhile, a description is all you need. And it's funny because I don't get involved in direct political conversations with very many people. But when I do, I try to... I try to lean toward description. I try to describe what I believe and what my values are. And what better description is there than the way you live your life? I'm a firm believer in living a life by example, leading by example. And when you lead by example, people know what to expect from you to a certain degree. Even if you're a weirdo, even if you don't do what they want you to do, they at least know the kind of person you are, at least as you relate to them, at least the way you are going to behave in a certain situation. I mean, we know people that you won't bring to certain events, because you know that it's a, there's a question mark there. If I bring this person into this situation, they might do something that's going to embarrass me, that's going to reflect badly on me, if I take this person to this party. And, you know, that's, And sometimes you bring people into situations for that reason, too. You know, everybody has their place. Sometimes you bring a wild card with you because that's what's fun, because those people are interesting. But other people definitely see you the same way, too, where, you know, the way you conduct yourself is, at the end of the day, how people will describe you. But if you do have to get into a discussion about these abstract beliefs you hold about things going on on the other side of the country or the other side of the world, It's best to describe rather than explain what you believe. But the funny thing about that is, depending on who I'm talking to, a simple description of my values could come across extremely conservative or it could come across extremely liberal. Meanwhile, I might not have changed a single word that I said. It's almost like that little visual trick people will do. They'll take a piece of gray. A, a color block that's just gray. And it's the same gray throughout this entire thing. And they'll put it on top of a gradient from black to white. And they'll move it over to the black side. And this little gray square will suddenly look almost white. You'll see it and you'll be like, well, yeah, that, it's very, very light gray. Then they'll move it to the other end of the spectrum, to the white side. And that gray square will look very dark gray almost black in some cases, and then you move it to the middle and it might blend in or it might just, you know, be closer to what's in the middle, depending on where you place it. And beliefs operate the same way. And I wouldn't say my beliefs are gray. But I do feel that descriptions are inherently neutral. And gray is the shade of neutrality. Whether that's accurate or not, I don't know. I, you know, I'm more black neutral, I'm more white neutral. But, uh, you know, gray has come to represent the shade of neutrality because it's in between black and white. And a description is inherently neutral. Therefore, a description is probably going to be gray for the sake of this example. But yet if you take that neutral entity, a description, and you bring it over to one extreme, it's going to look much lighter than it does normally. And if you take it to the opposite extreme, it's going to look much darker. And the same plays out politically and socially, where if you simply describe your beliefs, it might be the same shade in every possible conversation or scenario, but depending on what it's up against. Like if you're talking to a group of hard left liberals, radical leftists, let's call them, and you describe your fairly moderate views, they might be like, Oh, I didn't know we had a conservative here. Oh, my God, we got a conservative here. You know, they might very well feel that way. Meanwhile, you take the same the same set of beliefs to a, you know, fundamentalist right wing table. This is all at the same place This is all at the same bar where that blind date is happening. Uh, But you take that that same set of beliefs, the same exact description of your values, to a fundamentalist right-wing table, and they're going to say, oh, Todd. Oh, we got a Todd at the table. You know, they're going to both say that about it. And I don't consider myself a centrist or a moderate, because I think that implies that you're somehow making a compromise or you're somehow in this fixed position between two poles, when I feel that that area between the two poles is the most expansive and open and free area you could possibly be in. And to say that that's somehow a compromise, you know, it's just bizarre. It's like saying the ocean between two countries, two continents, is somehow a compromise. It's like, oh, there's a whole ocean. There's the Atlantic Ocean between... Europe and the east coast of the United States and if you somehow fall into that ocean you're you just uh you're a moderate it's like that ocean is not a moderate that ocean is a far more limitless and expansive place than either of those two continents on the surface alone not to mention the depth underneath it and so that's how I feel when people say oh a centrist huh Because you're an independent. I mean, I'm comfortable with the term independent. I'm comfortable with the term independent rather than centrist or um, moderate. Because I think independence is open. It's free. Free to change, but, you know, even within that freedom to change, you know, because I wouldn't say my values are 100% consistent. That's the thing too. Is that sometimes I feel different. Sometimes I feel different, depending on how my day is going, what I just looked at, what I saw, what my interaction with somebody was like. It's almost like doing jury duty. I found out. I, I worked at this place years ago, and there was an old guy who worked there, an older man, probably in his sixties, and he had to go do jury duty, and it ended up being for a some sort of sexual assault case and he was telling us about the interview process you know cuz they'll interview the jury candidates beforehand to try to disqualify people who might be biased or you know include people who might you know the the defense the defense gets to choose some of the people or they get to have some say in it basically they're trying to weed out bias create a neutral jury you know they're trying to create a neutral jury and uh, he had told us, though, one of the questions, cause keep in mind, this was a sexual assault case of some kind, you know, he, he didn't share the details. But he said that one of the questions they asked him was on a scale from one to 10, how would you rate your last sexual experience? Which is a really interesting question that I never would have imagined would be asked of a juror on a sexual assault case, on a scale of one to 10, how would you rate your last sexual experience, and how that's being used to measure somebody's neutrality in a sexual assault case. And I'm not going to read too far into it, because I think it speaks for itself. I think your own imagination can do the work when it comes to why that question might be relevant. But it's also very bizarre to think about. It's a bizarre question, even though it might be relevant. And of course, you know, they're looking for a neutral juror. And that's, you know, I think this has come up before when I've talked about explanation versus description, but when somebody is a, is testifying, when somebody is a witness in a court case, they do not let them explain anything. People will, the the other attorneys will object And the judge will weigh in. But the second that a witness starts explaining, somebody will object because that is not what a witness is supposed to do. A witness is supposed to describe. If somebody witnessed a crime, they are asked to describe what they saw. They're never supposed to explain what the motivation was or try to add other context to the situation. They are supposed to describe in the driest possible terms what they saw. Otherwise, their testimony will be thrown out, and it does get thrown out. If you've read transcripts of trials, if you've ever witnessed a trial, watched— I've, only, I've never been there for a trial, but I've seen videos, and I've read transcripts of trials. And when a witness tries to explain something, the attorney will object. And one of the attorneys, you know, will object, and the judge will throw it out. They will say— and they'll ask the jury not to acknowledge that part of the testimony because a witness should not explain. And it's hard to avoid doing that because we don't have a judge. We don't have attorneys objecting. But in your day-to-day life, if you make an effort to describe things. I believe you'll be a more reputable person. I believe people will trust you more. You'll trust yourself more. And again, it's another one of those things that you don't have to sit there every second of the day and say, am I explaining or am I describing? But if you are aware of that enough, it will become a part of you. It will become embedded in your subconscious, like all these other things I talk about. You will start to naturally describe more than you explain. And I do this with friends, you know, I try not to be a jerk off about it, but I do this with friends, or if a friend is ever telling me how they got screwed over, they got in a fight with somebody, they got in trouble at work, I always try to get the driest possible information out, them, out of them. They're my friend, and because of that, I support them. But when I notice a friend trying to go, yeah, but they said, you know, or yeah, but I was trying to... Or I'll I'll go, well, wait, did you do the thing that they said you did? And if they say yes, I go, okay. And then I can go on from there. Because they're my friend, of course, I'm going to let them vent. And it it can be very difficult, especially if you're in a close relationship, like a girlfriend or something. Because sometimes they will just want to give you an explanation for something that happened at work. But you also want to know what actually happened. And the only way to understand that is to get a description. And it's not that descriptions are the whole story either. But as many descriptions as possible is the closest you will ever get to objectivity. And even if one description isn't the whole of a story... You can use that in combination with other people's descriptions to maybe, maybe you'll start to see how the whole thing takes shape. Because if I'm standing on the left of a a castle, (laughs) I'm I'm looking at a castle and I see from my point of view, oh, there's a big spire, there's a big tower right here. And then uh, the gate, you know, I see the gate from the gates on my right. The gate is to my right. And then somebody else is looking from the left side of the castle, and they're going to say, oh, I don't see a tower. There's no tower. And then they're going to say, and the gate's on the left. Well, you can use that and say, okay, well, there's a tower on the left side that you can't see from the right side. And because the gate is to one person's right and the gate is to the other person's left, it doesn't mean they're wrong. It means they're on different sides of the castle describing different things, and that that castle isn't perfectly symmetrical it has a tower on one side so it's not that either one of them is wrong and they're each giving an honest description but their descriptions alone don't tell you what the entire thing looks like you have to listen to as many descriptions as possible and then those people from their vantage points they don't know what's on the back side of the castle They don't even know what's on the backside of the castle. This is when I lose my mind and I go out into public and I start just mumbling this shit where I say, the problem with modern political discourse is that they don't even know there's somebody on the backside of the castle and they're looking at the castle from different points of view and there's a tower over on this side and the gates in between them. You know, that's when I just sound like I've lost my mind. Yeah, it's really sad. Eric, you know, he used to have, you know, he's always been a weird guy, uh, but uh, you know, he used to have some insight into the world and then he suddenly just he started talking about how everybody is looking at the same castle from different points of view. Um and then he got his his eyes shot out by the the archer in the tower. <laughs> um but uh anyway, You know, that's the thing is even with a description, you don't have the whole story, but it's like you just try to get descriptions and try to live a life where you describe and it's not just though that you should describe your own political beliefs rather than telling people even if you are a Republican, even if you identify with everything that you believe a Republican is still try to describe your beliefs more often than rely on this group identity. Even for your own sake, even if this isn't something you need to say out loud to other people, review your beliefs in the most descriptive terms possible. And uh, you know, and also, I think that what's missing from all this too is people not describing each other. Describe your so-called opponent. Don't say, "Oh, he's a libtard." You're a libtard. He's a Nazi Republican. Don't do that. Don't do that. (laughs) Just don't do that, period. Uh, Describe what the person actually believes and try to get it accurate. Try to be accurate in your description. And if nobody has a problem with your description, well, keep doing it. Develop a habit. And strive for agreement. Because if you describe someone, you say, oh, he he believes in banning all abortion. And that person that you're describing says, yes, I I believe abortion should be 100% illegal. Well, then you're in agreement. You might disagree about abortion, but you are in agreement about what you are disagreeing about, which is important to this. And it's missing from the conversation in many cases, whereas there are many situations like I've mentioned my own views on abortion here, which I lean toward it being legal in some capacity, because I don't like the idea of back alley abortions. And I, I wouldn't consider my I wouldn't consider this a hill that I would die on. I don't think that I have the most nuanced, well rounded opinion on abortion. I don't like the idea of abortion the older I get. I just don't. It has nothing to do with faith. It has nothing to do with anybody else's belief system. On an intuitive level, something makes me feel kind of sick and sad when I think about the reality of abortion. Not just the reality of it happening, but also the circumstances that lead somebody to wanting or needing, in some cases, an abortion. Because I believe there are some situations where... I don't know it just it's there seems to be uh there are just some situations you know where it that seems to be the best option for somebody and it's hard for me to even say that but because of that I believe the option should be available in some way I'm not in a position to feel I, I don't feel comfortable putting constraints on that or limitations or describing what that is but even the, but me saying that me giving a hesitant I wouldn't call that support. I wouldn't say that I support abortion, but me just simply saying the option should be available in some way, because the alternative can be worse, could be taken, you know, completely the wrong way by somebody who is completely against abortion. They might think, "Oh, you're a, you're a fence sitter who thinks babies should die in some situations." And maybe they're not wrong, but it's just that would be a way of coloring what I'm saying uh, in a way that isn't fair to me. But on the other side, you know, I've said before that if abortion is going to be legal, I think we need to take take greater responsibility and teach greater responsibility. I don't think we should just treat that like, uh, oh, I can do whatever I want. I I can get into any kind of sexual situation that I want and with anybody that I want. And walk away from it at any time because, oh, hey, I can get an abortion. And even though that's a very small minority of people, they do exist. And I think that there is something morally reprehensible about that. Not that I judge the individual because I feel like they've been led down a strange path if that's what they think. But it's just one of those things. And me saying that, me being like, okay, well, abortion should be an option available in certain situations. But if abortion is going to be available, I think we need to double down on sexual responsibility. And me saying that would upset a whole army of leftists who would be like, who are you to tell people they need to be more responsible? Who are you to tell people when and where they should get abortions? You know, was something I'm not doing. I'm not telling anybody what to do. I'm simply saying that if we're going to have one thing, maybe we should reinforce a certain structure that makes that a last resort. Um, You know, and here I am, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm dancing all around here. I feel like I'm giving disclaimers left and right. But you can see we're simply having this one core belief, which I'm not even deeply invested in. I'm not deeply invested in the controversial topic of abortion. I'm just not invested in it, even though I think it's important And there's a reason why it's such a hot topic. I don't have a, you know, I'm not 100% committed to my view on it. And my view on it has actually changed over the years. But, uh, you know, you can see where that view is gray. My view on abortion is somewhat gray. But if you were to place that gray square on this end of the spectrum where everything is black, it looks white. And if you were to place it on the white end of the spectrum, it looks almost black. And depending on who I'm talking to, you know, my view on abortion sounds completely different than what it is. So that's just an example of what I mean. But all I can do is describe my view and what I feel. And there's a time and a place for that. You don't need to describe. You, you don't need to give your description everywhere you go. You don't. You, the world doesn't need you to describe things In every situation, you're not always a witness on the stand. And it's what I talk about when I say that, you know, the truth doesn't need little old you to exist. If something is truly true, it doesn't need you to tell everybody about it in order for it to be true. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't say it, there are certainly situations where you should speak the truth where the truth is the right thing to do. Telling the truth is the right thing to do. But the truth, if it's so objective, if, if the objective truth is so powerful and it's so true, because, of course, the objective truth would be true, sounding like an annoying philosophy professor or something, but, you know, if the objective truth is true, it doesn't need little old you to describe it all the time. But you should have that description ready because there might be a situation where it, you know... Everyone needs you. It's not that the truth needs you. It's that the greater good, people need you to describe things as they actually are. But it's, the truth doesn't care. The truth doesn't need you. It's sort of like the idea of God, where it's like God doesn't need you to constantly tell people about him. But there is a, a time and a place where that's helpful or important. It's it's very similar. And I don't think that you can completely separate the idea of God from the idea of objective truth. But that's a whole other topic. Even though it's inside of all this, it's in everything I talk about. Um, But uh, anyway, yeah, so yeah, just it's worth reminding, especially in our current times, describe rather than explain. And sometimes it's fun to explain. But if you think a situation matters, if there's weight to a situation, consider whether or not you are describing something, even if it's your own experience. Are you describing your own experience or are you telling somebody why something is or how it works when you don't actually have the authority to say that, when you don't truly know the why or the how? Just tell them the what and the when. That's what a description does. Telling people what happened and when it happened. And you can think of yourself in those terms. You know, what you do. What you see. And when. And I believe that making an effort to do that about your own life will help you do that toward other people. You will start to describe other people. You will give them some sort of objective benefit of the doubt, because that's what you end up doing when you describe. Even if they did something terrible and you're simply describing that, that's better than somebody doing something terrible and you're offering an explanation either for or against it. Because that's what I see now with this increase in political violence, this normalization of political violence. And if you're not aware, I mean, I don't know what these polls are based on. I wouldn't. I'm very skeptical of any poll of any kind. But I saw a poll where it showed they polled Democrats and Republicans and they asked them, you know, do you feel that political violence is acceptable? And it showed them over the last, I believe, 10 years And the number of people, and I don't know if these are the same people, but I think this does tell us something, and I think we can see it playing out right now, where the amount of people, the percentage of people who believe that political violence is acceptable in some situations has increased dramatically over the last 10 years. And there are people who would say that that's all in response to Donald Trump's felt, meanwhile forgetting everything that led up to that. They're going to tell you all of that started in 2016. No. Things have been moving in this direction. Remember that if you think everything started in 2016, everything that you don't like that's going on in the world, remember that it was your brain that was restarted at that point. The world didn't restart. Some of us didn't restart. And I don't say that with any superiority in mind. But this increase in tolerance of political violence, I mean, we're seeing more political violence now than we ever have in my lifetime. People getting killed at these protests and riots and people immediately taking sides. They immediately either support one person because they found out that they're on this side of the fence and they immediately condemn the other person because they're on that side of the fence and they're explaining away everything when all you need is a description. And I will only ever describe political violence exactly as I see it. And in my opinion, it's always unnecessary. Yeah, self defense, you know, I do, I am a believer in self defense, depending on the situation, but I don't believe any aggression politically, I don't believe any aggressive political violence is justified. I don't believe any explanation is appropriate. Only a description. Because that's where all of this goes when you're no longer willing to describe your opponent exactly as they are. You end up explaining What that person is and what they believe and it's that same process that leads someone to start explaining why they deserve to be shot or explaining why the person who shot them was justified and you never want to be in that position unless you're a lawyer because that's why we have a specific profession who does that and people trash lawyers but I think a a lawyer is actually a noble profession not every lawyer. Sure, they're seedy and corrupt lawyers, but I think the idea of a lawyer, the concept itself, that this person is going to go in, and they are going to defend somebody who is indefensible, even in some situations. But we need somebody to do that. And that lawyer, while they are going to offer explanations. They're going to do so using witnesses and arguments that are based on description. So while there is, you know, of course, lawyers are manipulative, they have a goal, They're not there to promote the truth if they're defending a monster. They're trying to win a case for that client. But the game of justice requires a lawyer to give that person their due as well. A a lawyer needs to try to convince people that even the most egregious, obvious case of horror committed by a person can be justified. It needs that argument. Because that's what justice is. It's justice is the consideration of all arguments. But it's through description. It's through witness descriptions. It's through evidence. Which is based on the the core scientific approach of. Describing things as they are. That's what evidence is. It's simply it's the what and the when. You know and so. Courtrooms are a fascinating example of everything I'm talking about here, but you should never be in a position yourself where you're, oh, guess what? I'm pretending to be a lawyer because this person agrees with me. This person's voting the same way I am. So in my social life, I'm going to pretend to be that person's lawyer. You don't need to do that. You don't need to do that unless you have an agenda. In which case, guess what? You're a liar. You're dishonest. You're trying to explain the day away. You're trying to explain the day away. So, I don't know. I don't expect this to get through to people. I feel like most of the people that I know about and care about basically live this way. And nobody's going to do it perfectly. I don't do it perfectly. I just try to lean this way. I try to lean in this direction. And I hope other people do too. Because there are a lot of things, there's a lot of philosophy, there's a lot of spirituality. There are a lot of people who have made these same points. They're not revolutionary, even though they seem to be missing. People have been through this before. People have thought this out before. We just have to not lose it. That's what this comes down to is not losing this. So I will continue to hammer at home. Because one, you have to be honest in your description of yourself. And in being honest about your description of yourself, you will be more honest in your description of other people. And if you're more honest in your descriptions of them, you will be more honest in your, your description of everything else that you and other people interact with people you know people you don't know life itself and that is the end goal is to be as descriptive as possible about life itself without trying to explain it